It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hello and welcome to New Scientist Weekly. I'm Penny Sartain. And I'm Rowan Hooper. And this week we're joined from New York by reporter Corinne Wetzel and from London by news editor Jacob Aaron. Hello both. Hello. Hello, glad to be here. Coming up on the show, we're going to be exploring a big claim in artificial intelligence as DeepMind announced a potential breakthrough. We'll be hearing about the diet of the people who built Stonehenge and we're going to bring you all you need to know about the monkeypox virus. We're also going to talk about what a gene editing bill going through the UK Parliament means for our food and we've been talking with a planetary scientist on the Mars Perseverance rover mission and hearing about what it's like when your job is literally to explore another planet. We've also got an amazing free giveaway, but Yay. we'll tell you all about that in the middle of the show. <laughs> yeah. Yes, uh, but it is worth waiting for. OK, let's start with I, it's a potentially massive development from DeepMind. That's the London-based artificial intelligence company. Uh, you'll have heard of them because of the breakthroughs they've had in the past. So there was AlphaGo. That was the AI that beat the world's greatest Go players. Uh, and then AlphaZero. It was basically the same, but with chess. And then AlphaFold, we spoke about you know not too long ago on the pod. And that was a really impressive one that solved the protein folding problem. And all these AIs were really amazing but they could only do what they were trained to do. And the dream and the goal for many years has been to make it an artificial intelligence that can be flexible. I mean, that can do many different things. And Jacob, that's what DeepMind is now saying they've done, right? Well, sort of. So as you say, artificial intelligent researchers uh, have been trying to get to this goal of artificial general intelligence for a long time. This is the idea that you would have an algorithm that you could chuck basically any problem at it and it would be able to solve it just like a human can. DeepMind's not claiming to have done that, uh, but they have released what it calls is a generalist AI called Gatto that can perform 600 different tasks. So it can play Atari video games, it can accurately caption images, it can chat naturally with a human, stack colored blocks with a robot arm, all sorts of things. Right. So it's not you know able to do everything, but it's quite an impressive range of tasks. Yeah, so... Um... I read a, a tweet from computer scientist Nando de Freitas at, at DeepMind. He was saying the game is over, uh, slightly tongue in cheek, I think. But when Gatto was released, basically suggesting that now achieving full artificial general intelligence was, uh, you know, just a matter of scaling up more and training it a bit more. So where where are you on that? What, you know, is that accurate? 
I, I think that's probably a, a little bit too optimistic. Uh, one, one researcher described it to us as they've basically taken AIs that have been trained on all these different 600 tasks and sort of stuck them all together in one. <laughs> so it's not that you've got one one general algorithm that's learning to do everything. It's more, you know, imagine you had 600 people lined up to, to do a job for you and you say, okay, you do this one, you do that one. You wouldn't say that you've got someone who can handle any task you, you throw at it. But it does seem to be a much simpler algorithm than some of the the rivals, doesn't it? Using less processing power, basically. Yes, certainly reducing the amount of processing power uh, is always a good thing if you want to then scale up, because that gives you room to actually scale up. But it's still quite far off uh, from artificial general intelligence. If this is the path, we're on now the path to AGI, don't you end up eventually with something that becomes self-aware? Uh, you know, you become a, you do get a super intelligence. And then what do you get? You get the singularity, you get humans merging with machines, right? I mean, is that where we're going? It's still a big if, right? It's still a big if whether a super intelligence can actually exist. I'm saying I slightly reject the, uh, the premise of your question. Oh. Uh, in oh. that, you know, yes, if a super intelligence did exist, uh, I think a singularity scenario would certainly be possible. Whether mm. that can actually happen, you know, jury's still out there. It seems like it should be able to happen, but a lot of stuff that we write about in sci-fi doesn't necessarily come true in the way that we expect. I've gone down a bit of a rabbit hole with this story because, you know, I've just been sort of refreshing myself on what's going on and there's just some unbelievably advanced stuff out there if you're going into it as quite as an amateur really like me but some of the language models like gpt3 and chinchilla the stuff they do is just it's blowing my mind you can ask questions to them you can give them prompts Um, and there's one about um there's another thing that we've been talking about this week or we've written about this week um where you give something a prompt and it creates a picture of, of that for you right yeah, so these t- uh, text-to-image um, AIs have really come along incredibly in the, the past two years. So the most recent one, uh, again, it's it's Google. Um, their ImageGen, or Imagen, depending on how you want to pronounce it, uh, model produces, I think they had you know a, a panda sitting in front of a painting of flowers and, and things like that. Yeah. OpenAI is, is another one working in uh, this area. In April, they released their DALI 2 model. And the the images you see are almost unbelievable, especially as I remember, even just a few years ago, I would read papers of people working on a similar problem. And, you you know, you could only generate an image that was 32 by 32 pixels. And it maybe looked a little bit like the thing that you'd asked for if you squint. And now these images are basically perfect. The big question there really is, are they um, able to produce amazing images all the time? Or are these companies only sort of cherry picking the best examples to present us? Yeah, I mean, I take the point with cherry picking, but as you say, it is going improving so rapidly. And it just makes me get a bit philosophical, really, because, you know, you can imagine, you know, these obviously these things don't know what, uh, you know, what a panda eating an ice cream really is. It can just create it. But it start, you start to wonder whether it matters if the algorithm has never tasted coffee or, you know, can describe a rose you know, if it's starting to feel like we're getting to a simulation of consciousness that is the same as consciousness. I mean, that's always been one of the huge questions in AI, hasn't it? Do you actually, if you can simulate consciousness, have you achieved consciousness? Yeah. 
I, I almost don't know whether we can ever answer that because, you know, if you're simulating it, you're simulating it and it's a complete perfect model of, of consciousness, right? You can't yeah. distinguish there, between the two. There's no consciousness inv- involved. We like pandas. We filled the image uh, with the internet with images of pandas tagged as pandas. We feed that into an AI and then we tell the AI to show us a panda. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. I mean, that, that's certainly true. And and actually, Google have said, you know, they, they fed so much horrible stuff uh, into this AI. It it has all these horrible pictures in it that it ha- they have to put extra filters on it to mm. make sure that it doesn't draw stuff. I saw um, there was a piece in MIT Tech Review uh, by uh, Will Heaven, who, who uh, is formerly of New Scientist, saying this thing really should be producing panda porn. And the fact that it isn't means that Google has fiddled around with it in some way. <laughs> mm. <laughs> um, okay, we'll we'll come back to the small matter of machine consciousness later. Thanks, Jacob. To Stonehenge now, where we've got an amazing story about the people who built it. Corinne, you've reported on this. Yes, so the people who presumably built Stonehenge um, likely ate raw cattle organs and then shared the leftovers with dogs, according to a new analysis of the parasites that are trapped in their ancient feces. <laughs> Tasty, <laughs> right? Yeah. Uh, actually, I love this story because uh, I, when I first saw uh, Stonehenge, you think, not more Stonehenge, but you keep <laughs> finding more amazing stuff about it. <laughs> okay, and this is four and a half thousand year old fossil excrement, although I suppose it's better than having to go through the fresh stuff, isn't it? (laughs) Exactly, yes. I've been told that it has um, less of a fragrance than the fresh stuff, certainly. Um, And so fossilized feces can give us really great clues about what people were eating because what goes in must come out. Um, And this is a Stone Age society and they didn't have toilets. Toilets hadn't been invented yet. So these feces were recovered in sort of a large garbage pit that they used, you know, had animal bones, had human waste, had sort of a little bit of everything. And... For this study, scientists looked at 19 different samples of ancient poop, and they took a peek at them under a microscope, and they saw that in four of the samples, there were tiny parasitic eggs. And these eggs are from a parasite called capillariid, which is a type of microscopic worm. And the way that they could identify that these eggs were from capillariid worms was because of their distinct lemon-like shape. And these are very, very tiny eggs. Um, You can only see them under a microscope. And they're also capillariid eggs are known to infect cows, which gives us a really good clue that humans then were eating cows. And the only... And these capillariid eggs are specifically found in the internal organs of cattle, and they wouldn't have been able to survive being cooked. So that's where we get the clue that these were raw or undercooked organs. And they found these samples in both human feces and dog feces. So that clues us into the fact that humans were sharing table scraps with dogs even back then. It's just a great detective story, isn't it? And I I was kind of so obsessed at the moment with the industrialization of cattle farming that we've that we've seen in the last decades, you know, that you you forget that that we've had cows domesticated for thousands of years. So obviously these Neolithic people had had them, didn't they? Yes. Yeah, so cows were actually domesticated uh, about 10,000 years ago. And we know that the people who lived at Durrington Walls, the settlement just a few kilometers from Stonehenge, that is thought to be the settlement of the people who built Stonehenge over time. We know that they ate pigs and they ate cows based on evidence of bones found at Durrington Walls. So that sort of narrows down where this parasite potentially came from. But because capillariate eggs don't infect swine, we know this must have come from cows instead. 
And what about the dogs? Um, when they're doing it, can they, they can they tell through the microscope what, what dog poo is or, and human poo? Or can you tell from the shape? <laughs> yeah, well, actually, if you think about it um, in modern times, the shape of, of dog poo and human poo is actually not quite that different. So they couldn't tell just from the shape. They couldn't tell from underneath the microscope. So what they did was look at the chemicals in the fossilized feces. So as animals digest food, different animals produce different chemicals to break that food down. And so scientists can look at the chemical signatures in the feces and match it to known animals. So they were able to look at these four fossilized feces that contained parasite eggs and look at the different chemicals inside them. And they found out that some were from humans and some were from dogs. We're gonna take a break now to tell you about what's basically an awesome free giveaway. Yep, this is about free, unlimited access to all our news and all our in-depth articles in print, in-app and online at newscientist.com. Whether it's sentient trees, space travel or the mysteries of the human mind, New Scientist provides the answers to the biggest questions surrounding the most fascinating topics. Find out for yourself and try four weeks for free. Head to newscientist.com slash four weeks free to find out more. So that's the number four weeks free newscientist.com slash four weeks free and we'll put a link to that in our show notes ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row dreaming of something better well hello fresh is your guilt-free dream come true baby it's me geeky palmer let's wake up those taste buds with hot juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi Mm. hello fresh Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Next up, we've got we've got good news for vegans who don't get enough sunlight. Yep, this is the news that CRISPR gene editing has been used to make tomatoes that could be high in vitamin D. About a billion people around the world don't get enough vitamin D, particularly those of us in northern latitudes that don't get enough sunlight. Yeah, it made me think of like vampire vegans who don't get... Actually, there's loads (laughs) of people who don't get enough sunlight. Could Um, be you and me, Rowan. (laughs) Yeah. Um, So how are they making these tomatoes? So the team used CRISPR to alter a gene that normally causes tomato plants to make cholesterol from a molecule called provitamin D3. So this change means that the tomatoes have more of this provitamin hanging around. And the plan is that when they're exposed to light, the tomatoes should convert that into vitamin D3, which is one of two main forms of vitamin D. Okay. And you said should. Does that mean we don't know quite how well well it works? There's always stages to this kind of research. And uh, the field trials are due to start next week, actually, to see how much vitamin D3 they do produce when they're out there in the light. Okay, um, and so why why are our vampire vegans going to be so excited about this? Where where do vitamin D supplements come from at the moment? Yeah, so it's not something I'd actually thought about before, um, but apparently, usually, uh, vitamin D supplements are made from lanolin from sheep's wool, and so wow. if yeah yeah, so if you're a vegan, the vegan option tends to be made from lichen, and they are usually more expensive. So that's the good news for vegans potentially. Wow. What, so you, would you make the supplements from tomatoes or just eat the tomatoes? 
Yeah, so, so hopefully both should be possible. Um, so there, there is a suggestion that you could maybe eat two of these tomatoes a day to get enough of what you need, which sounds great. And we know that sort of dietary eating stuff in your food is, is usually better for you and you get more of the, the vitamins than you, you would necessarily from a pill. But also it should also be possible to make actual pills and supplements using, for example, like the leaves or the green tissues, because th- those might be high in vitamin D too. Surely vitamin D ketchup is the way to go. (laughs) (laughs) I was picturing a nice nutritious salsa. Mm. Yeah. So the gene editing element here is interesting, isn't it? Because, you know, in Europe, we've had a lot of anti-genetic modification sentiment, which has really hampered uh, the take up of the stuff. Yeah, and EU law basically means that no genetically modified or edited food can be sold in shops. So without kind of getting into the historic stuff, of course, many have argued that GM or GMOs, they're safe and they shouldn't have been banned. Leaving that whole sort of controversy and and both sides aside, there is now an argument that CRISPR gene edited foods should be treated differently to those kind of older method foods, because these use very precise techniques to just kind of tweak an organism's existing genes rather than inserting whole new genes from a completely different organism. Right, right. Um, So it's less of a yuck factor for people. And so why uh, this week we saw the UK taking its first steps towards this, didn't we? Yeah, Wednesday saw the introduction of a bill that would see gene-edited crops treated differently in the UK to genetically modified ones, the ones made with older techniques. Our reporter Adam Vaughan described this as one of the country's first big post-Brexit divergences with the European Union. And how do people feel about it? Well, I thought this was quite striking, actually. A a consultation last year found that 88% of people in the UK opposed the rule change. Um, So it seems like quite a large majority would be anti. Mm. Yeah, that's 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 kind of upsetting, isn't it, actually? And, And I think it's an important moment for people in the media and like us to really communicate clearly the benefits of gene editing. Because you know, it's a transformative technology. Uh, it's going to really, it can be so helpful. So it's it's really important that we don't make mistakes in communicating this, its value and its safety. But also do that work as well to to scrutinise because uh, we know with GM there's been a lot of um, trust issues and suspicion of the the particular companies and the particular uses. So it's also on the media to have a look at, you know, how are they regulated? How are they tested? And, and, you know, um, how do we know that they're safe? But I do think um, GM, first off, let's remember, it's actually been used for decades now in the US. So Europe is a bit of an anomaly in terms of its attitudes. But also, I think, you know, when we initially we we're talking about things maybe like putting in herbicide resistance genes that just increase um, the use of pesticides and monocultures and reliance on big companies and that kind of thing. But if we're actually talking about gene editing that makes food have a real tangible benefit for you, the person who's eating it, I think maybe that does actually have the potential to change people's minds. Now it's an important moment in our exploration of Mars, so we're going direct to our Mars correspondent. (laughs) Yeah, well, it's as close as we can get to one. Um, I've been talking with Sanjeev Gupta from Imperial College London, and he's a planetary scientist and one of the mission scientists for NASA's Perseverance rover as it's starting sampling this uh, an ancient river delta on Mars. Sanjeev, thanks for joining us. So where is Perseverance at the moment? Gosh, well, we we have driven from the landing site across the crater floor. We did in the first, you know, initial part of the mission, we actually investigated the crater floor in Jezero Crater. And 
found some really amazing, exciting things. And now we've started our campaign of investigation of this delta that built out into Jezero. And so Jezero is thought to have contained a lake that was fed by rivers and the rivers carried sediment and built a delta deposit at the western edge of Jezero Crater. And we've now started our investigation of the delta. Right. And so that's the, that's a key moment in the whole mission, really, isn't it? Because we're really interested in the delta because this is where we think it might be most likely to find evidence of ancient life. Is that right? Yeah, I mean, we don't really know where we're going to find no. life. Early life, um, you know, it could have occur in diverse locations, but deltas feeding into lakes are one of the high priority targets for astrobiologists and planetary scientists. So, um, you know, this is a good place to start our search. So what would we be looking for, like microbial fossils? So it's, again, difficult to say, and we go by, you know, what we've seen on Earth. Obviously, these we use those as guidelines. But I think what we're likely to see more most is chemical signatures of life in the samples that we collect, basically. So organic matter um, that can be then analysed in uh, Earth laboratories, really. But that would be of ancient life, not of current That's, life, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. So yeah, yeah. Perseverance is not looking for present day life it's looking for ancient life and the rocks that we're examining are you know about 3.7 billion years old it's about kind of around the time that life got going on earth you know microbial life and so this is what we're looking for with the idea you know that maybe life got going on on the two planets at around the same time okay um i think you said you're on rover duty later today so what does that entail and does it mean that you get to drive a rover on mars from your house in london <laughs> no 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 they wouldn't oh. let <laughs> that's not my task so right. obviously operating a rover on mars requires a huge number of people um so a lot of engineers and a lot of scientists um in fact the science team is almost 400 people so I have two roles, basically. Firstly, I'm a scientist on the mission. My task is to interpret the sedimentary rocks we find and you know, place them in context and try and work out the paleo environment, the ancient environments in quite a lot of detail and the sort of the processes that operated on Mars. But my other role is an operations role, and I'm what's called a long-term planner for the mission. Um, we're about 10 of us on the mission, and we it's kind of like an, a kind of advanced logistics role in some way in that what we do is we work closely with the engineers in planning out the activities of the rover, the science strategy, these sorts of things. Obviously, you know, given a large mission, you know, there's a lot of voices, etc. And so what we do is we integrate what science wants, you know, what experiments we want to do, what, what rocks we want to look at, and then work with the engineers as what's actually doable, because obviously rovers have a lot of constraints in terms of power, data volume, where we can actually go to. Um, so there needs to be quite a close interaction. So when I'm on shift today, we'll have done a drive in the last few souls and we'll get to a new place and then we have to work out what what what, what do we want to do, you know? Yeah. So it's, it's very, very different from an orbiter mission where you can yeah. just program the orbiter to collect data, take images, etc. Here, you know, you roll up and you don't know where you are and you've got to rapidly assess the imagery and decide on the spur. And that's why these missions are actually so expensive, actually, is because, you know, it requires day-to-day -day analysis and et cetera. I'm curious about whether it feels like just a job to you or whether, you know, you, you still every day have to pinch yourself and think, I'm involved in 
operating a robot on Mars? You know, is it a thrill every day or has it just become routine? It's sort of become routine, partly because I've been working on, um, obviously this is a new rover, but I've been working on Curiosity since 2012. Uh, sometimes you can forget what you're doing. Yeah. And it, it, in some ways it is a day job, you know, it's a day job. Yeah. It involves spreadsheets and PowerPoints. It's no different to anybody else. But I think what's really exciting is that, you know, after we've recorded this, I'm going to check in and see what images have come down from yesterday. And, you know, just to say that you've seen a new bit of Mars, I think that's quite astonishing. And I think yeah. it's easy to forget the scale of what we're doing is this it's exploration. I don't want to, you know, I don't like to grand things up too much, but it is very exciting. I'm very privileged to be part of these missions, basically. I think it's okay to grand things up a bit and say you're exploring a new world for the yes. first time. You know, that is what it's doing. Yeah. Um, so you mentioned about how you have to determine where you take samples from. And you're just basically doing that by looking at the images. Is, is that right? It's partly looking at the images and trying to reconstruct the rocks. Partly we take chemistry measurements of the rocks to what work out, you know, what's the chemistry of the rocks and are these the right rocks to sample? And it's about trying to find, so we're looking for fine grained rocks that might, mudstones that might contain organics. Uh, but then we collect samples for different reasons. So for example, on the crater floor, we collected these beautiful igneous rocks. So that was a surprise. We, you know, we weren't fully expecting igneous rocks. Igneous rocks are really good for dating. Igneous rocks being a volcanic rocks. Volcanic rocks, that's right. Yeah. Yeah. And they're really good for dating, so radiometric dating. So, you know, those samples we collected are going to be superb when we bring them back onto Earth for actually mm. dating the rocks and getting a timeline for Jezero yeah. Crater, which is you know, something we don't have. You know, we don't have actual precise dates for geological events on Mars, and we need that. We need to do that in Earth laboratories. Um. Are you a patient man? Because you have to, these are long missions, aren't they? And then even after you've sampled all that, you've, you've chosen the rocks, you've, you know, you've instructed the rover to take them and store them. We've still got to wait to go up there and then bring them back to earth, haven't we? Yeah. So in some ways, actually, that's, that's not going to be my science that you hand that over to other scientists, you know, analysts, right. chemists, etc. with that expertise. That's not my expertise. So what will happen is that this is a sample return mission. We're collecting these samples they will be carried in the rover and then there'll be a depot point where we'll depot the samples. And we'll probably have two depots, a sort of a insurance depot <laughs> and right. at the main one. And then there'll be a mission in 2028 that will retrieve those samples from the Martian surface, take them to a Mars ascent vehicle that will launch those samples into uh, Mars orbit. And then there'll be a third mission in the early 2030s they will retrieve those samples and bring them, bring them back to Earth. That was Sanjeev Gupta of Imperial College London there. And one thing I meant to ask him was whether he dreams about Mars. So I imagine if you spend so much time looking at images of it like he does, you know, you'd end up dreaming about it. And I just, you know, it's a fascinating mission, though I just can't get my head around how, how decades long it is and you have to wait for the results all the time. Now, Penny, we're used to asking you for an update on all things COVID, um, but this week we've got uh, monkeypox to deal with. So what's the latest? Yeah, I honestly don't enjoy being the bearer of viral news. Um, so there are more than 170 confirmed cases 
that of monkeypox that have been recorded around the world outside of Central and West Africa where the virus is endemic. So the the virus there is endemic in monkeys. It sometimes jumps to humans. But this is the largest known outbreak that we've seen outside of those regions that where the virus normally is. Yeah, I'm getting a horrible deja vu uh, feeling talking to you about this at the beginning of an outbreak. So it feels like it's spreading more in the UK and elsewhere than it has in previous outbreaks, right? Yeah, there have been small outbreaks outside of Africa before, including in the UK. But usually those cases can all be directly traced back to people who've travelled to countries where the virus is. This time around, we do seem to have some community transmission in European countries. So that's where people are catching the infection with no traceable connection back to Africa. So what is monkeypox and how does it spread? So it causes symptoms like fever, headache, body aches, chills, exhaustion and swollen lymph nodes. So it's mm-hmm. quite a long list there. Um, but, you know, it's pox. It, it causes a rash on the face often, which can then sort of spread to other parts of the body, including the genitals. And apparently this rash can initially look like chicken pox uh, before it then forms scabs. And you can catch it from contact with the infected animals. It also spreads through close contact with infected people, probably via droplets. That's a bit that really gives me deja vu when it comes to COVID. Mm. Um, And through touching skin lesions or contaminated material like bedding or clothing. It's not defined as a sexually transmitted infection, but it can spread during sex via skin to skin contact. But I, I should say... You know, we're making the deja vu comparison, but I remember first hearing about the mysterious viral pneumonia with a high death rate in China, that that's not quite the same thing. Yeah. So what about the seriousness of it? Yeah, there are two strains. Um, The West African strain is less deadly than a Congo strain, and it is the West African strain that has been identified in the UK. Um, Not everywhere sort of sequenced um, which strains are are where yet. It's hard... um, we, you know, we did this right at the beginning of the COVID pandemic. It's hard to get a good uh, measure of, of what percentage prove uh, fatal because often you only know about the cases that are serious enough to get noticed. So the West African strain, for example, um, it's thought to be fatal in about 1% of identified cases. But if there are lots of milder cases that no one really notices, then actually the proportion would be much lower. However, it, it does sort of depend on your circumstances. So children are more likely than adults to become seriously ill with monkeypox and infection during pregnancy is not good it can lead to problems like stillbirth even okay and like here's another deja vu like could it become another pandemic Mm, um so I think it's fair to ask that question and it's worth noting that not all pandemics are like the COVID pandemic. You know, we, we have had various other ones. If you remember the swine flu pandemic of 2009, for example, mm. that wasn't severe enough for us to take extreme measures like the lockdowns and the mass testing. So yeah. a pandemic isn't always like COVID, as we well know. Um, mm. But there's no official definition of a pandemic. But sort of in essence, a kind of rule of thumb is that it needs to be something that can spread from person to person. It needs to be able to kill people and it needs to be circulating in multiple countries. So technically, monkeypox could fulfill those criteria. But fortunately, as of the 21st of May, at least, there's been no reported deaths yet from those non-endemic region outbreaks. So um, fingers crossed, we're not going to get there. Okay, thanks, Penny. Uh, And we'll leave it there for this week. Do rate our show and subscribe and tell all your friends and family to listen. Yes, and thanks to our guests on the pod this week. uh, From Mars, Sanjeev Gupta, and from Earth, Jacob Aaron and Corinne Wetzel. I'm Rowan Hooper. And I'm Penny Sashay. Bye for now. We'll see you next week. Bye. 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 
This podcast is produced by OG Podcasts. Find out more at ogpodcasts.co.uk. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mm. 